Hey, it's Kathy. I just want to let you know that I'm doing a free five-day workshop. It's called the Abundance Activation Challenge, and it starts today. And it's not too late for you to join us. Today is the last day to join. Go to kathyheller.com slash five day to sign up. The pre-party has been happening and it's been such a blast. There's so many high vibe women in there who are ready to call in more abundance. I know that you will love that you showed up for this. I'll be live at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern every day this week, teaching you how to become a master manifester. You are just going to have the best time. If you want to join us, sign up at kathyheller.com slash five day. Each one of us has within us our own healing ability. And if we can recognize that and work with that, the healing not only starts, it continues and it works. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. Today's episode is truly extraordinary. We have Dr. Gladys McGeary on, and she is a phenomenal human being. She's also 102 years old, and she is somebody to admire for so many reasons, and I can't wait to share this episode with you. I want to remind you that starting this coming Monday, I will be doing a free workshop on manifesting the most abundance in your life. You can go to kathyheller.com slash abundant to sign up. It is free. It is going to be truly a beautiful journey. There will be meditation. There will be prompts and ways that you can really change the way you are manifesting during this week-long workshop. You're going to start to see synchronicities. You're going to start to feel so much lighter. Join me. Go to kathyheller.com slash abundant and get your seat. It's a free live workshop. As I said, I am so excited about today's episode. I'm honored that Dr. Gladys McGeary is on the podcast. She is a centenarian doctor. She's 
still practicing holistic medicine. She's also the co-founder of American Holistic Medical Association. She's a speaker, author, and founding diplomat of the American Board of Holistic Medicine. She's been called the mother of holistic medicine, which is such a fitting title because she's pioneered a new way of thinking about disease and health for over the past 60 years, which has transformed the way we imagine healthcare and self-care around the world. Some of her past books include The Physician Within You, Born to Live, Living Medicine, The World Needs Old Ladies. And this week, she just came out with a new book. It's called The Well-Lived Life, 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. And it's all about her philosophy for living life to the fullest with more joy, vitality, and more purpose, no matter how old you are. It's such a powerful guide that will really shift your habits and your mindset. Plus, she talks about meeting Gandhi and how she became a doctor when most women didn't even have bank accounts. You're really going to love this, so go get yourself a copy. I don't even have the words to describe what it's like to be with her. She is such a treasure and such living proof of what we truly can make our lives be. And the fact that she's still doing this work at 102 years old, I mean, there's probably a fraction of a fraction of the population that is on the level that she's on. This was a delightful and meaningful conversation. Without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Dr. Gladys McGarry. Dr. Gladys, thank you so much for making the time to be here. I'm so proud to be here. You're so amazing. I'm already like getting an upgrade to my whole being just by being with you. You, You've been doing so much to love this world, to help people shine, to help people find health. And it's been a a long but beautiful journey. Thank God. And you have a new book coming out. So I feel like before we go back into your journey, I just want to talk about this book because it's so eminent. Why did you want to write this? You've already shared so much. You've already given so much. What was it about the message of this book that you felt was really important right now? Well, my other books were all about, mostly about my concept of what medicine was all about, what healing and health and all of that was about. But this was more my juice. It was what made me want to be able to do the things that I wanted to be able to do. So it was an opportunity to investigate within myself, but also as I reached out to other people, the responses for that inner longing that we all have for our true humanity. And it sounds to me like you and I are talking the same language. That's such a huge compliment because we all really live in different worlds depending on how we perceive and how we speak. And that's a giant compliment for you to even say that. I would love to think that that's true. Just so people have a sense, the new book is titled The Well-Lived Life, A 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. And it really is a marvel that you are the age you are, and yet your spirit is ageless, completely ageless. The amount of expansion, the amount of capacity you have for joy, the amount of goodness and ease that you have is something I don't think I've ever seen in anyone at any age. So it's no (laughs) wonder, it's really not a wonder that you've been able to live because you're actually living. So let's talk a little bit about this book then. and, And what do you feel like is one of those six secrets to living a healthy and happy life? Well, first of all, is to have something to live for. I can't tell you how many patients through the years 
I've asked them, well, what do you really have to live for? And they really have never, ever thought about it. And so the concept that each one of us is here for a purpose and that we have to identify that purpose so that we can actually begin to realize that it's our privilege to be able to live this life at this time. It's so true what you're saying. And I feel like I once heard someone say that the opposite of depression might actually be purpose. And what does it mean to you to have something to live for? And what is that that people could maybe start to look for or reach for in their own life? Well, you know, I've tried a hundred years to put it into words, but (laughs) I'm joking at that. But actually... (laughs) I have kind of a little template that identifies the essence of it. And that is life. Without life, there's nothing. Forget anything else. I'm calling them my five L's. So life is the first one. You got to start someplace and life is where to start. But life is like a seed. You can have a seed in the pyramids for 5,000 years and nothing happens. It's got all the energy of the universe within that seed, but nothing happens until love activates it, like water and somebody paying attention to it and doing something with it. At that point, love and life combine and become the essence of what life is all about. Um, It's like the sperm and the ovum. One without the other is useless. But together, they are life itself. Mm. So start out with those two together. And then the third one is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's mean. It's cold. But laughter with love is joy and happiness and harmony. The fourth one is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. It's mean. It's hard. I got to go to work. There's so many diapers. You know, it's just too hard. But labor with love is bliss. I mean, that's why you do what you do. It's why a singer sings, why, why a painter paints. It's what we, in our inner being, know that we're at bliss when we're doing what we're doing. And the fifth one, fifth L, is listening. Listening without love is an empty gong. It's empty sound. It doesn't mean anything. But listening with love is understanding. So beautiful. And so these five L's kind of put my philosophy together. It doesn't add up to the whole thing, but it's the sort of the undergirding of my philosophy. I mean, it's such a beautiful philosophy. And at the same time, what makes it even more compelling is that you are indeed somebody who's been in the world of medicine and holistic medicine. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that love is also the most powerful medicine. Um, Can you explain after having all of the experience that you've had in your life, why you think that love winds up being the most powerful medicine for those of us who are wrapped up in a culture of thinking we need Tylenol or some pharmaceutical or some intervention why would we start to believe or know that love is actually maybe the most powerful medicine? Well, you know, 
our Native American sisters and brothers understood that to, to start with. My parents, who went to India as missionaries out into the jungles of North India, understood that. They didn't identify it as such. But the whole concept of love being the essence of what healing is all about is essential. My oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And when he came through town here, he was going to start his practice in Del Rio, Texas. And he said to me, Mom, I'm scared. I'm real scared. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you can understand that it's your job, which is an amazing job as an orthopedic surgeon, you have the capacity to do amazing things. But after you've finished your job and done the best that you can, if you can't turn that healing process over to the patient and support them as they do their own healing, that's right. you have a right to be scared. But if you can do that, you have nothing to be scared of because that's love reaching out to love. And I think it's that essence of knowing when and I call it the physician within the patient. Each one of us has within us our own healing ability. And if we can recognize that and work with that, the healing not only starts, it continues and it works. Wow. I mean, it's so beautiful. Deepak Chopra was on the show and I spent a weekend with him and he said, doctors, create the conditions for which the patient could potentially help heal themselves, right? Like if anything, it's just a another helpful facilitator for you to ultimately do your work in healing right. yourself. Right. And you're such a master of that. And when it comes to aging, I feel like society has really gotten it wrong. Like when I think <laughs> about like what you already said in this few moments of such beauty already, like, purpose, you know, what do we see? We see people retire from their purpose. And then we see the average life expectancy correlate with the retirement age, you know, and we see people in these blue zones living into their hundreds and they're just thriving. And I just would love to hear from you what you think and what you see that people are getting wrong about aging and how they maybe could change the paradigm of how they see it because how they see it is in fact what it winds up being because that's what they believe to be true. And because uh, every moment is what's important. That yeah. each one of us, when I was 50, I had believed that I was 50. And wow, as I look back, all the things that were happening at that time. But now at 102, I look around at all the things that are happening are just as exciting and just as important because today goes into tomorrow and tomorrow goes into the next day. I mean, it's, it's the process of life, which is, has to flow. We have to make it work or we kill it. And if we stop living, if we stop moving, if we stop actually moving, even a small part of our body, we can't really function. 
you know, even blinking an eye is moving. And another thing that we've gotten wrong, too, is that when a doctor tells a patient, go home and get some rest now. You've been at your computer too long. You've got to get some rest. A lot of people take it as, well, I give up. You know, if I'm supposed to rest, I just give up. I, I, I don't have anything to do. But the problem with that is that if you give up, it's not resting. If we ask you to rest, that's doing something. It's not doing nothing. So it's how we understand it. It's how we want to work with it. It's what the process all is. And so, yes, it's that. I know this sounds maybe crazy, but maybe not. But I feel like speaking to you is like my closest shot at like calling God on the phone. (laughs) And I think it's because, you know, when somebody has the capacity to receive this level of life, you've kind of, your vibration is just so in sync with love, right? And so that's like, why I probably say that. But I guess I think to myself, wow, what do I want to ask her? And what I want to ask you is, you know, having grown this podcast, meeting lots and lots of women, I can tell you there's so much suffering going on inside people's heads. And I just feel like, what would you say to the women who are in their thirties and forties who beat themselves up, give themselves such a hard time, want to put things in the world, are constantly in their resistance around, am I good enough? Is it enough? I didn't make the right choices. What am I doing to be the best parent? I mean, the amount of bandwidth that is spent on shame and criticism of self is so destructive and exhausting. And I I imagine it can't be good for our health. So what would you say to those women in their 30s and 40s who spend too much time with that microscope on all of their flaws and and not enough time just in flow, just in allowing, just in inspired action, let's say. Yes, being aware that that life is so important and life and love. But, you know, I had to learn that because, well, before I went to school, life was idyllic. I mean, I thought everything was fine. We were in tents in the jungle and all, you know, it was great. But then I got to school And I couldn't read. I knew the alphabet. I knew the numbers. But when I started to try to read, they were all over the page. And I was so severely dyslexic that I had to repeat first grade twice. And I didn't really understand that I gave up an aspect of my true voice until I was 93. I mean, I would repeatedly do something. I'd write a book and I'd say, yeah, but Bill edited and so and so on. Or somebody would say, well, thank you for saying that. And I'd say, well, that comes from. I was constantly deflecting what I had just said and had not was not claiming it. And in the not claiming it, I was actually at some level, denying it, maybe not for everybody else, but denying it for myself. And then I had a dream. Now, dreams are very important to me. So, and I know they are to you too. But in the, I was 93 and I woke up singing 
and laughing. But you, you know that in between stage where you're neither here nor in the dream nor well, that's where I was, and I saw Gladys as a seven, a nine-year-old in the jungles of North India, and I was coming out of our tent, so I pulled the tent flap back, and I'm looking out to make sure that my younger brother isn't there because he'd probably tattle on me because I knew what I was going to do, and we weren't allowed to sing anything but hymns and pudgeons on Sunday morning, <laughs> and. I thought it was a stupid rule, so I wanted to do it my way, and nobody was around, so I ran as fast as I could, climbed the mango tree clear to the top, and I'm sitting up in the mango tree, and I'm singing the caterpillar song and any old thing that I wanted to sing. But every so often, I'd look over my shoulder, my right shoulder, and Jesus was in the tree with me. And I looked at him, and I said, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he laughs and he says, yes. And then I go back to my singing and then I begin to doubt again. And I think, Jesus, I'm still a little children, right? And he says, yes. So I go back to singing. But that's when I woke up. And when I woke up, I realized that I had been denying my voice all this time. Not because we were told not to sing or anything but because I really didn't think I had the voice to say anything. And you go through two years as a six and seven-year-old kid where you're the class dummy, the other kids think you are, the teacher thinks you are, and it you get a pretty good dose of damage that's done that uh, you can't really understand. Yeah. It's a, such a deep scar that you can't understand it. And so uh, wow. that really set me free. That is so beautiful. Brought tears to my eyes. Thank you so, so much for sharing that. And one of the things you talk about in the book and through your work is learning to know that you have intuition and you can be your own medicine for yourself. You, you can be your own physician, your inner yeah. physician. Yeah. And I think we do exactly what you just said. We just outsource our adequacy. We outsource the knowledge. Somebody else knows better. And this is so crucial, right? The returning to the sanctuary within the knower that knows the part of us that's connected to God, the part of us that's connected to the divine answers. How do we walk ourselves back home to that? Well, let me tell you, to build up to that question, I am so concerned about what we've done to birthing and what we've done to our womanhood by telling ourselves that we have to have someone else deliver our babies. Mm. That's wrong. I keep finding myself saying something like, well, I delivered so that. No, the mothers birth babies. We help them birth babies. I'm thrilled to be able to help mothers birth babies. But we have completely robbed women of the essence, the very essence of their power, which is birthing a baby. And we haven't just injured that. We've damaged it really deeply. And enough so that I 
have to catch myself not to say I delivered such and such a baby. It's the mother's privilege and responsibility, but she's the only one that can do it. It's It's so fascinating. You know, I have three daughters, thank God. And uh, when I had my first daughter, I remember having been told by a friend that if you ask the nurse in the labor and delivery room, they can put these bars on the bed that you can hold on to and you can squat. And I remembered when I got into the labor and delivery room and it was, it wasn't coming along quickly. And I said to the nurse, Hey, isn't there a way where you can put some bar on this bed so I can actually be in a position to squat? And my husband and the nurse said to me, what are you talking about? Nobody does that. Very few people do that. That takes a tremendous amount of strength. Just go with what we're saying. And I said, no, I want to try it. And sure enough, there I was, the bed kind of moves into this other kind of position so that you're now you're in the bed, but the bed now has like a bottom part and these yeah. squat bars go on. And, and what happened? I delivered the baby because Absolutely. I had, I could do it because I was empowered because I was on my feet and I, I've never felt so strong. I could cry just thinking about it. I named my daughter Gabrielle, which means God is my strength because I felt stronger than they told me that I was. Yeah. And that experience gave me so much. And I can't believe that I have to ask and beg versus laying backwards in a position where I have no oh, agency yeah. over my body. And you're so right. And nobody talks about this. No, no. And when I started medical school in 41 in September and World War II started in December, all right, all through that, we were learning about birthing babies and so on. But but the whole thought form at that time was the basis of what we're still working with. And that was to relieve women of pain during childbirth. It was called, you know, this awful amount of anesthesia. I had my first two in that condition. I didn't know that my first son was a boy until 24 hours afterwards. And in medical school, we were taught how to use forceps. Because you see, if the woman is totally anesthetized, she can't push the baby out. So how are you going to get the baby out? Well, I got to be real good at that. I could even help a mother with an after coming head. It was a technique that you learned. And it was all on the basis of trying to help the mother so that she didn't have any pain. And nobody thought about anything else but that aspect of it. In fact, in the 70s, I had a young person with me who was from the University of Cincinnati, and we were going to the hospital for her birthing. And on the way home, he said to me, that's the first spontaneous delivery I've seen without forceps. Without forceps Mm in 70s. Now, I had my last two at home, but I created the baby buggy program and a lot of other things. Bob Bradley had written a book about a husband coach childbirth and so on and so forth. But the movement was there. And right now, my vision for the future of my life 
on this planet, I really, really want to have created a village for living medicine where the people who are there as workers, the people who are there living there, everybody understands the whole concept of we have this power within us, but you start out with the birthing and the birthing has to be a loving birth center, not just a delivery center. You know, we deliver pizzas, we deliver speeches, we don't deliver babies. So it's the loving birth center where the mother can do what she wants to do, what she needs to do. I have one wonderful patient who danced her baby out. I swear she danced the whole time and it was just part of the music and the baby came with it. That's the the reason I went to Afghanistan was because women in Afghanistan were, well, the highest birth rate in the world was in Afghanistan and uh, the future generations. My brother was, was head of that. Couldn't find out why. And so I was just getting ready to retire from my practice with my daughter, who's still practicing. So he asked me if I would come and see what we could find out. And the basics in a sentence, those women were so schooled in what they couldn't do. In other words, as soon as they got pregnant, they had no calcium-creating foods, no yogurt, no eggs, no carrots. And when they went into labor, they weren't given anything to eat and drink. So now I said to them, you're doing the most important and hardest job in the whole world. And you say you can't feed yourself? Well, so they were looking at each other and one said, I'll bet some man figured this out. Well, I think so. I think the whole concept of not having any pain is because men can't stand to hear a woman cry out in the birth of pain, not understanding that there's a a dimension of pain that goes beyond what you're trying to stop. And so, well, we had a wonderful experience and we're able to teach them how to really feed themselves and and they accepted it and understood it and there were 34 in the little groups that we had and when they went home within a year the birth rate was improved tremendously both for mother and baby you know intuitively know what to do our bodies know this if we just pay attention to but the problem is The whole field, the whole world has been so caught up in the pain that they forget the life force that is what you're working with when you're birthing a baby. It's a uh, masterful example of where it all breaks down, right? And that's why that was where you went when I asked you that question. What do you think you would say to the women who are spending time outsourcing their sense of self who are spending so much time suffering unnecessarily in their minds. um, What might you want them to know in order to live a more joyful, healthier life? Believe in the fact that life really 
is a wow, but you have to look for it. If you look for darkness and pain, you find it. If you look for light and hope, you find it. Not in big bunches all the time. Sometimes it's just a little glimmer. Sometimes it's just a word that is said. But if you're looking for it, you find it. If you're not looking for it, you don't find it. You've lived through so many seasons of the world. And as you said before, you were doing this before World War II broke out and you've seen so much across the world. But in the time that you've had to now have this experience and to have perspective over time, what's your view of the world and the way people look at it? And is there anything that we're we're assuming about the world that actually isn't really true? Yes, definitely. I think the world is caught up with pain and suffering and fear and all sorts of negative things that stop you if you're given half a chance. And I think that we're losing our true humanity. Our true humanity is the aspect of ourselves that understands that we were given dominion over the earth, not dominance. We're given the right and the privilege to be the ones who can do these things. And we've forgotten it. We've forgotten it. It's so true. Yeah. When people buy this book and it comes out on May 2nd and we'll put the link out and we'll make sure that people have a way to go grab it. What's one thing that you hope that people will have after they read it? What's something that you hope stays with them? That love and hope are essential and the movement, movement of the thoughts, but movement of the body also are really, really important. We have to move or we get stuck. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And since you mentioned that you went to school in first grade and before that you hadn't been in school, were you living with your parents who were missionaries in India up until that point? Yes. Until I was 15. Yeah. Yeah. Then what do you think now about school and people in school? Do you think that there's anything that we should be sort of aware of or cautious about when it comes to putting kids in school, putting them through school and what really is the benefit and maybe the actually challenge of school as you see it? Well, I think that reading, writing and arithmetic are really nice, but I think that the arts and that we've taken out of the schools and so on. When I was going through school, we had some special things that we did and and so on. I'm sad to see that those things are being taken away. Yeah. My last question is, you know, it seems as though no matter what it is that we talk about or what it is that you write about, it all comes back to finding within yourself real power, real joy. And for people living in the day-to-day who are living a a pretty, I guess the word would be... Yeah. How do, how do they raise their vibration? How, how do you keep yourself in a state of grace and joy and expansion so that you don't get sucked into all the fear? Well, you know, those fear things happen. They, they catch up to you. But I look at it as sort of like having a flashlight in the dark. Each step is just as far as that flashlight goes. And there are times when you can't really go any farther than that. I mean, you're so stuck in something that's going happening and all of that. 
that you can't go any farther, but you can go that far. You know, that's it. You can have that light in your hand and you can move that far and you can go and you can go and you can go. That's so beautiful. I love that. And I think we can, we can go that far. Thank you for all of this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being who you are. We will put the book, the link so that everybody can get it and just keep shining. You are such a light. And you too. Thank you. God bless you, Dr. Gladys. Hey, bye-bye. Wow. Dr. Gladys is incredible. What a gift to share that space with her. All right. Now we're going to switch gears. I'm going to share a coaching call I had with an entrepreneur, Cressida. She's been running her own company, but she's not sure if she's feeling called to do it anymore or if she's just burned out from feeling like she has to do it all. I'm going to help her see what shift she needs to make in her business to make it run with ease and how to let go of the idea that we don't need to do everything. A big thanks to Cressida for being so vulnerable and letting us share this with you. I know it's going to resonate with a lot of you because we've all had a moment when we're feeling guilt or shame for not doing enough. And this is a lie that has to stop. So here we go. Take a listen. Hi, Cressida. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much. Okay. So to get right to it, I guess my question is this, how does one know that their business that they're currently doing is where they can find what they need, like this fulfillment or like, is it time to cut the ties, pivot, move on? Or is it just a mindset shift and finding you know, a different way to approach it. I guess that's such a good question. I'm so turned on by this question. I like this question. We haven't heard this question yet in this group. So tell me more about what is this current thing and how does it feel? Sure. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of a tech business. We're an on-demand babysitting service in Canada. Um, So we're in nine cities across the country and we help thousands of parents. So the service aspect is there. And I don't know if it's just the insane entrepreneur roller coaster ride that I've been on since 2017 that I'm like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? This is bananas. Or if this is not my oomph, you know? Okay. Well, first of all, there's so many pieces in this that we can get into because they're all really juicy and really important. The roller coaster ride of being an entrepreneur, right? It has to do with what our capacity is, what our tolerance is for. BS basically. Why I say that is because very often we're working harder and harder instead of working smarter and smarter. And what gets you from here to here will not get you from here to here. Okay. And some of that can be in our codependency with our team. Cause sometimes the answer to the question, the question that needs to be asked is not what else can I do, but what else can my team do to support what I'm doing so we can scale? And for a lot of women, I call that out because I have lived that. I have seen that. We are over-functioning codependents. We're not the needy type of codependents. We're the ones that don't know how to receive. So we over-function. We take care of everyone. We do Christmas dinner. We buy gifts for everybody. We're working on our weight. We're working with our kids. We're doing every epic thing. And nowhere are we allowing people to show up and to give and to be the right person who's doing the right things because that business should continue to grow at this point without you. And if it's you dependent, that's a big problem. So I would want to audit that business and see how much is it dependent on you? Because Mark Cuban, I mentioned before, he owns like 2000 companies. He's not worried about it. He's like, it's your job. You do it. You're that person now. You're the CEO of that 
I'm the founder, you work for me and you show up and here's your expectation and I love you and I'm going to pay you well and I'm going to tell you what to do and we're going to make this, we're going to make it work, right? Because very successful people, they don't shut companies down, they allow someone else to run it and it's a yes and. Most billionaires own multiple businesses and most successful entrepreneurs have multiple things going on right? We talked about Reese Witherspoon the other day. She has a clothing line. She creates content. She's still acting. Good, smart. We're way more creative. Marianne Williamson said to me, even the most genius person you've ever seen hasn't scratched the surface of what they are capable of. She goes, look at mother Teresa and you see it. She can do a thousand times that. That's what a human being can do. My mom says sometimes like, well, we're just people. I'm like, you're just people. Do you know what a person can do? Go watch the last dance. Watch Michael Jordan. He's maniacal. He didn't go drinking with the guys. He used to look at them and be like, don't even tell me we're on the same team because we're actually not. And that's why you throw to me every time because I'm not getting the girl and I'm not going drinking in every city because I'm here to win. And you know what it is about people who stand out? A lot of times we grow up and we're like, I don't want to stand out. Anyone you admire doesn't fit in. They do stand out. They threaten people. It's hard to win because every time you win, there'll be people who look at you and they're so threatened by that. They're going to hate you for it. There's a cost to standing out. There's a cost to being Serena Williams. There is a cost to it. And she's not giving an F about it because it's her against herself. Doesn't matter what the people in the cheap seats say. It's not her problem, right? We've got to get real. This business sounds like it's profitable. Sounds like it's lucrative. It sounds like you're exhausted. Okay. But you're a genius. You're smart. You created something. It's sustainable. You're helping thousands of people. Let's get the right person in there. And let's have you at the stove with a few pots and you're checking it, making sure it's boiling, but somebody else is doing the work now. That'll probably help you in your life too. I would look at that, but I'm hearing two things, either There's a creative juice that you've no longer gotten out of this. You've taken it as far as it can go. And the creativity is in bringing somebody else in and you want to put your creativity somewhere else. Or maybe you just cannot continue to go the way you've been going. And if you were to reshuffle the way this business actually is executing itself every day, you'd have more room for creativity in the business. Because the truth is, once you have a customer, most businesses, 80% of their business is from repeat customers. Okay. It's just like in your closet, you wear 20% of the clothes, 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. So in our business, people will be like, I'm here again. (laughs) I listened to the podcast. I've already done one program. I'm doing now another program, right? 80% of your customers are repeat, which means find something else for them to buy. Find a different service, find a different product, find a different solution. What's a derivative of that? So if you start with people who need babysitters, what else is that? What else they need? What else does she need? Get the data, find out right? And if you have the right team in place, now you start getting really creative. You're like, Ooh, how am I going to create different spider webs from this that are going to serve that person, right? My friend, Jenny, I mentioned before she started with vegan corned beef, fake corned beef. Now it's steak slices, turkey slices. It's now it's going to be vegan mayonnaise. Now it's like, of course it is. Of course it is right. Disneyland was six rides when it started. 
Now it's all these worlds and Disney World and Epcot, right? Keep going, keep going, keep going, right? And they're going to sell you photos before you leave. And there's going to be jackets. And they're going to make sure that there's an experience. And there's a Disney cruise. You could go on Disney Africa. You can go on a safari with Disney. Yes, 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 right? You don't have to shut the business down. You have to redo the way your business is run. And you have to look at where can you get your spark back. But if you're too tired because you're working too goddamn hard, no one gets the award for that. There's no award. You should not be proud of it. I used to hear myself say this. I was proud of it. I was like such a martyr. I'm so exhausted. I'm making $5 million. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know what I have to do? It's like, shut your mouth, right? Just shut your mouth. You're really just exposing your weaknesses. You know, Mark Cuban is not saying it's so hard to be a billionaire. No, it's not hard. You don't work harder, you work smarter, right? People who are billionaires are not working in their business. They're working on their business. Get out of your business, work on your business. Hmm. Lead, lead people, right? Making profit, that's almost the easier part. (laughs) It's about how are you gonna lead people to sustain your profit? And we can do that better than men can do that. We're just not showing up for it. We're not seeing it. We bow out too fast and we're too codependent. So leading people becomes hard. Believe me, Colleen and I are always on ourselves about this. We over-freaking function constantly. She'll go get a PhD, but it's harder for her to say to somebody, that's not working for me. You know what I mean? She can hoop jump her way through life. And it's like, yeah, no, maybe you should just make somebody else jump through a hoop. Is any of this resonating? And then I'll let Colleen weigh in. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It just feels expansive as opposed to like pigeonholed and yeah. Definitely. Thank you. The big thing I just want to add is this concept that's important for all of us to really be freaking aware of is we take ourselves with us, right? So what I mean by that is even if it was true, because this can happen, right? It can be either that we feel pigeonholed and we're just not seeing the possibilities to expand from where we are, or it is possible from time to time, like something we're so passionate and lit up by eventually, maybe it does shift and change and there's no right or wrong in any of it. But the truth of the matter in all those circumstances is we take ourselves with us. And so the same problems and the same challenges we're bumping up against in one area, we're going to go recreate and replay out from one relationship to the next relationship, from one job to the next job, from one business focus to another business focus, unless we get to the heart of what it is that's really at the crux, which was a lot of what Kathy was talking to, like, ooh, how are you not being supported or Ooh, how are we so exhausted that we're not tapped into the stream where we actually even have the space to feel into the expansiveness of what's here and the possibility of what's here. And so when we start to realize, oh my gosh, I can boundary around this. I don't have to feel apologetic or guilty. It's life-changing, right? When we can step into that. And it's like, great, if Sunday you could go on and sell that company. No one says you have to be in that forever. Mm-hmm. But the issues at the moment use this as a gorgeous opportunity for growth for you, wherever it leads you, it leads you, but rise to it so that you don't have to feel like you're feeling right now when you're waking up every day. So true. How do you feel about what she just asked you? Where are you at now? Cause you started with one question. What has your intuition told you now that we've given you some feedback? I mean, I think that I'm the type of person that wants to do, I feel like I should be able to do it all. I should be able to do it all. I have a four-year-old. I have a six-year-old. I have a business. I have a family to run. I have a household to run. I have a husband. I've got all of this. I'm supposed to, I'm always like a perfectionist. And so I feel like I take that with me in my business in that 
I should be able to wear these hats. I'm an entrepreneur. It's a small startup still. You know, it, I should be able to do it all and letting go of that and allowing somebody else to bring new life into it or take some of the load off. It's a very hard shift, but I can see if I was able to do that, it would probably allow me to find more of the joy and excitement in the business that I had originally had when I first started it, you know, like this is a major problem. I want to help people. Like we can have a impact on thousands of people's lives and be able to focus on that. It's just a hard shift, right? Yeah. Because our amygdala, you know, it's gotten very big over the years and years and years of human beings, you know, procreating, we just have this fear and you have a connection point, right? From when you were little, a subconscious connection to I can do it all keeps me safe. Over-functioning keeps me safe. Being perfect keeps me safe, right? When really, you know that that's bullshit. You're at a point where you're like, this is actually hurting me, right? It took me years, years to have help. I used to feel like I can't have a a nanny. I can't have help. Why? And my therapist was like, you can have help in your business, but you cannot afford, you cannot allow yourself because it's not about money at this point. What is it about? Right. And when I was first, first married before I had tons and tons of money, I remember the therapist saying, even if you just work just to cover, even if it was, it was equal signs just to cover having help. She's like, it'll be worth it because you need oxygen. And I'm like, you're so right. She's like, the first thing I tell people is even if you work two days and all that does is cover that somebody's there to help you breathe, that's gotta be number one, right? You change the way you look at having help. Yeah. It's so important. And you know what, when you call people up and you let people feel needed by you, that is such a gift to give people, right? Your husband wants to feel that you need him. Your kids become better when you say, I could wipe down the table, but I want you to do it. You call people up, they actually like it. And now we all set the table for Friday night. We all pitched in and we all clean up and mommy can breathe. And then mommy has more capacity for presence. She can be present, right? Mm -hmm. And mommy does take care of herself. Right. I I finally like, and when I say finally, I mean, it's not a feat of honor to be $6 million into a business. And this is the first year that I have somebody in my house preparing meals for me. I used to not eat. It's like hire someone who you love to help you eat healthy in your house. That should be done. That should have been done years ago, years and years and years ago. Not, it's not a badge of honor. Right. So now it's like, oh. There's food on the table. I eat lunch. What a concept. You know, I'm not exhausted. We now, this is the first time. I mean, there's been four months of this. I finally have help on a Saturday. I have three kids. So now, now I have help 8 a.m. to 2 on Saturday. You know what that lets me do? Go get a massage Saturday morning and sleep a little bit because I'm working all the time. And then I pick my kids up at three o'clock. I don't miss that. My team knows I'm not on calls after three o'clock. I'm a mom. So I can't ever have a weekend. I've been living without a weekend. That's not a vibe. That doesn't help my business thrive. And now in my business, there's a whole CEO week. It's like, go, don't work in your business this week. Work on your business. Go fill yourself up. Why is that important? It makes the whole team better. Makes everything better. It gives potency to things. You catch things that are messy and sloppy. You get more refined. You call people up better. 
you manage better, you lead better, you have tons of creativity, you have not milked the most out of this business. You can take all of those customers, you should be getting data from those customers, there should be feedback forms, you should find four other problems that you can solve and you can start trying one, but you need a team and perfection is a trauma response. Mm. And it's not a vibe. No one really wants to be perfect. We take that on because there's something we're protecting ourselves from. We have to hit a certain standard so that we feel safe and seen. If I were you, I would make a giant leap in my business and I would not shut it down. You've gone so far. You should be so proud of yourself. And it is time. It is time to actually allow this to flourish by getting you the support that you need. And you'll be amazed how many people are eager to work for an amazing CEO like you. Yeah. How many people are currently on your team? It's very small. We only have like four people on our team. Okay. I have a feeling those four people can work smarter. Yeah. Or they're like three people, one of the two. Yeah. We need people who are not helping out. Like it's a tea party. We need people who are rallying. We need people who see the mission and we need to give feedback. We need to give them the right feedback. And we need systems in place so they know exactly how to get an A with you. Yeah. And we need to architect that. Yeah. And then we can actually start to create new products and new solutions. And that's going to be amazing. And you're going to have fun. Next thing you know, you'll be writing a book about this. You'll be speaking about this, right? You'll move into Sarah Blakely territory. You're not done. You're not anywhere near done. You're just exhausted. That's my, that's my intuitive thought. Thank you. Yeah. And just one last thing that I want to leave you with is you said, oh, this is going to be a really hard shift. I want you to start saying, what if it's so much easier than I thought it would be? Because the way we talk to ourselves is how we create. And I want you to stop using that expectation that making this transition is somehow going to be hard because it doesn't have to be hard. It actually gets to be the easiest thing you've done. Might feel a little uncomfortable because of course we're showing up for ourselves in a different way, but it doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. And it's such a relief too. Thank you so much for sharing all that. All right. Well, that was all so good. I hope you got something from this episode. Here are the takeaways. Number one, the first secret to a happy and healthy life is to have something to live for. Each one of us is here for a purpose. It's our privilege to be able to live this life at this time. Number two, love is the essence of healing. Number three, we have this power within us. You have a life force that can overcome pain. Number four, believe in the fact that really life is just a wow, but you have to look for it. Number five, it doesn't matter what the people in the cheap seats say. That's not your problem. It's only you against yourself. Number six, don't work harder, work smarter. Work on your business instead of in your business. Number seven, when you realize you can set a boundary and you don't need to feel apologetic or guilty for it, it's life-changing. Number eight, change the way you look at having help. When you call people up and you let people feel needed by you, this is such a gift to give them. Number nine, instead of telling yourself this is going to be a really hard shift, start saying, what if it's so much easier than I thought it would be? It doesn't have to be hard. It actually gets to be the easiest thing you've done. Thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate getting to do this, how much I appreciate that you're here. I hope that you're getting so much from this. We have so many good episodes coming out. So please subscribe and follow along on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you really love this show and if you appreciated today's episode and you want other people to hear this, then go ahead and text them the link right now or email them the link or post about the show on your Instagram. And by the way, if you sign up for my five-day workshop next week, there is a chance to win a red iMac Apple 
desktop computer. So you uh, can just go to kathyheller.com slash abundant. Not only do you find out how to enter this amazing giveaway, but you'll also then be able to get the replays and be there live for the workshop that I'm doing next week on how to manifest the most abundance in your life. Just go to kathyheller.com slash abundant and join us starting Monday. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend. Just like a soldier